1: Hi everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Kyle A. Jaros, who's Associate Professor in the Political Economy of China at the School of Global and Area Studies at the University of Oxford. And he'll be talking about his new book, China's Urban Champions, the Politics of Spatial Development, which was published this year, 2019 by Princeton University Press. The visual icons of China's 21st century economic and political rise are surely the megacities such as Shanghai, Shenzhen or Guangzhou. The figures and facts that are offered to complement photos of neon-lit neon lit skyscrapers in these cities often include details such as the fact that the country has over 100 cities with over a million inhabitants, or that China's population became over 50% urban around 2012. But even if all this looks like a neat encapsulation of a country on the rise, how and why all these cities have developed in the ways and the places that they have is not a straightforward question in somewhere as large and diverse as China. This is why Kyle Jaros' China's Urban Champions is so valuable and interesting. Looking at the developmental trajectories of several lesser-considered regions of China, Jaros argues that the provincial-level planning that goes on in China offers the key to understanding the broad sweep of urbanisation across the country and the different forms it has taken. From areas which seem to pour all their resources and energy into just a few headline projects to those whose efforts appear more evenly spread, we get a rich sense here of how megacities and urban clusters take shape in unexpected locations and of how a communist party whose foundational philosophy was embedded in agrarian and wooden spaces has adapted to favour more concrete jungles. Jaros' portrait of how politics on multiple levels shape and are in turn shaped by urban development is all the more valuable at a time when, as in Hong Kong today, cities continue to be the focal points of alternative visions for how to organize Chinese society. But to discuss this and many other themes, I'll say, Kyle Jaros, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much for appearing. Uh, but, pa- Kyle, uh, before we get on to the book, Perhaps I could begin by asking you something of your background and how you came to be interested in China and its cities.
0: Sure. Um, so as you, as you said, I'm, I'm currently based at the University of Oxford. I've, I've been there since uh, 2016, and I've been very pleased to be part of the Contemporary Chinese Studies program there. Uh, prior to coming to Oxford, I spent a couple of years as a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, specifically at the Ash Center Uh for Democratic Governance and Innovation, which is a center, despite its name, for actually quite vibrant China studies. And prior to that, I was, I was also based at Harvard for my PhD. So I, I did a PhD in the Department of Government at Harvard. And it's really um, back to that experience with the PhD and the dissertation I completed for it that this book uh, has its origins. So this book has grown more or less organically out of that dissertation project, although it's certainly changed and evolved in a number of ways. Um, Going back even further, uh, I've been interested in China for a long time and I've been interested in cities for a long time, but it took me a little while to put the two interests together and to realize uh, that I could do that and that that was um, a credible sort of academic trajectory. And and so I was inspired by the work of a number of a number of different scholars, uh, among them, um, an older Shijie, a sort of academic older sibling of mine, Meg Rithmeyer, who's now a professor at the Harvard Business School. Um, by the work of Dorothy Solinger, by the work of Jeremy Wallace, by the work of Jee Ho Chung and, and many other scholars who've done really interesting work that looks at the intersection between politics and central local relations in China and mm-hmm. urban political economy and governance.
1: I see, I see. So did you have a kind of initial interest in China that then brought you to governance as a way of looking at China? Or would you say that one of would you say one of the interests in, in yeah, in, in cities or in China was primary? Um or or, or, or do they kind of grow up exactly together?
0: I think the interests for me were really parallel. Um I've been I've been sort of focused on China in a in a serious way since since I was an undergraduate. Um that's when I started studying Chinese language, and prior to that I hadn't had much intention of becoming somebody who researches China and teaches about China for a living. Um so that developed, I think, out of getting acquainted with the language and out of having the chance to spend some time in China. Um, my interest in cities probably goes back even further. I mean, I remember as, as a kid poring over uh, maps of cities and maps of regions in the US, uh, being overawed um, by skyscrapers and urban skylines. So there's a, you know, this sort of visual charisma of cities has always mm-hmm. appealed to me, but it, it conceals a lot as well. And I think as, as I've studied it more rigorously, I've gotten more interested in what goes on behind the, this kind of urban spectacle.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in terms of time spent in China, I mean, as I hinted at in the introduction there, the uh, book draws on data and and on uh, sort of descriptions of a whole bunch of really fascinating and and impressive, impressively diverse locations, uh, including more out of the way uh, parts of the centre of the country like Changsha or Nanchang. Um, Have you had a chance to spend time over the years in, in places like these, these kind of second or even third tier cities, as I guess they get called in China.
0: So this this book is based on a little bit over a year of fieldwork, and that took place in several different locations. So I, I wish I had had the luxury to really marinate in, in one place for multiple years, which is what I think you need to do to really understand the dynamics you know, in depth of policymaking in any given city. I mean, years are probably not enough. Um, the way that this project was structured, um, I had the opportunity to spend a, a few months in, in several different locations. So among mm. those um, were Xi'an, uh, Nanjing, uh, slightly shorter amounts of time spent based in Changsha and Nanchang, uh, the provincial capitals of Hunan and, and Jiangxi province, respectively. Uh, parts of the province uh, also took shape uh, in, in Beijing, Shanghai, other major centers, which are important for getting the sort of larger policy context. Of china's mm-hmm. urbanization um so yeah so certainly the book is rooted in in field work it's also something that draws very heavily on on written sources and in many ways i think the field work and the interview research i conducted although rich was mostly a way of orienting this the you know the the documentary and archival work that the project draws upon
1: right right and no, well i think they they sit very well together in the book i mean um of course one can gather as much Data and and, uh, and and facts and figures as one wants, but I mean actually having a kind of local interpretation of what that data means and where it comes from, you know, can often be the most helpful way of, <laughs> I guess, arriving at a at an academic framing of what one's doing uh, in the end as well. Um, but that's fantastic. Well, once now we know a little bit about where the book came from and, and what it's based on, perhaps we'll uh, we'll jump in. Uh, so you begin chapter one, uh, your, the introduction, which is entitled "Picking Winners in Space." Um, describing something of how the focus on urbanisation in developing China has has shifted over time. Um, so perhaps I'll begin by asking: I mean, in the course of post-1949 China, um, has the priority always been on the big cities that we know today? Um, how has how have ideas of urbanisation uh, shifted uh, over the course of the life of the People's Republic?
0: So, no, there's been, I think, tremendous volatility in the idea of how cities should fit into both the political and the developmental project of, of the PRC. Um, so part of the book, um, in particular, a, a part of, of the second chapter of the book, examines in, in very broad brushstrokes some of the larger historical background, um, some of the longstanding debates that have occurred in China's urban policy and regional development policy. Um, I should say that one of the things that the book tries to do is to bring together what are sometimes parallel and disconnected discussions about urban policy and regional development policy, because I think these are often very much entangled in China. Um, Mm -hmm. They're often seen as referring to sort of different scales of development, but I think increasingly these have become more and more part of a, a, you know, a a coherent or perhaps incoherent larger process. Um, If we go back to the early years of the PRC, there was always this sort of tension and uh, ambiguity uh, and, and ambivalence, I think, in the, in the leaders and the early leadership of the PRC, no, you know, not least Mao Zedong himself, about what role cities and particularly large uh, cosmopolitan commercial cities should play. This was indeed, as you alluded to in the introduction to the podcast, a rural based revolution, you know, a revolution carried out by those who decried the kind of excesses and injustices of urban exploitation, the vanity of, of commercial urban cities and who sought to, I think, root the People's Republic of China in something a lot more firm. So they, they certainly saw the value of industrial production, and, and much of that had to be based for practical reasons in cities. And they certainly hoped to cultivate a, a strong proletariat. But this was not a, a communist revolution that was solely based on, or even primarily based on the proletariat to begin with. So it was always a revolution that sought to balance rural development and urban development in different ways. Mm-hmm. Early on, um, the priority, of course, in the, the first uh, couple, well, I should say the first decade in the first major five-year economic plans of the People's Republic of China was this crash program of industrialization. And by necessity, that that meant a need to uh, consolidate some of the major industrial centers along China's coast, but also an effort to develop new centers for industrial growth. Um, so early on, there was an effort to build industrial growth poles across China. But this coexisted with a real uh, tension and even concern that cities would grow into sort of unmanageable entities, that they would again revert to their, uh, their more commercial and capitalistic ways. And so there was always a, a, a kind of tempering force of anti-urban suspicion that went along with urban development in the early years of the PRC. Over the following decades, what we see is really a seesaw in the relative emphasis that China's development planners and political leaders put on cities relative to the countryside, with phases where there was, I think, certainly heavier emphasis on on major cities, although not necessarily the the biggest national cities, and then phases when there was much more emphasis placed on dispersing development, um, both for political and economic and geopolitical reasons to smaller cities and rural areas, periods where the developmental needle really shifted toward a prioritization of rural interests, as during certain parts of the the Cultural revolution decade. Um, And so we get this incredibly sort of disorienting path um, when we look back at the The sort of the the pre-reform history of China's urban policy that it really cycled through a number of different stages, Um, and in addition to that, there were tensions between the sort of regional development ambitions of China, which involved doing more to uh, counter this so-called irrational distribution of productive forces and people with heavy development of the coast, moving more to the interior. That regional development ambition um, with the need to actually. Uh, disperse people away from big cities because what it took in practice to try to develop interior provinces and to build industry in the interior was actually to build up some new urban growth pools in the interior. But then by definition, that reproduced a kind of spatial inequality that I think the regime was uncomfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. As as many scholars, uh, including uh, Jeremy Wallace, have, have discussed in depth in previous work, uh, one of the ways that China managed to sort of thread this needle in balancing its concern about urbanization with these developmental imperatives was strict control of population movements and especially the Hukou regime that was
1: instituted forcibly from the late 1950s onward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's a, that's a fascinating and uh, pretty important slice of, uh, of, 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 of the, of the well, piece of the jigsaw, if you like, um, especially I think for people who've come to China uh, now or anytime in the last 20 years when one's experience as an outsider in China is dominated often by urban experience and by the feeling that this is a you know it's an urban it's an industrializing and an urbanizing country um actually you know it's pretty important i guess to uh, to to notice you do that this hasn't always been the case um and actually i just wonder uh, jumping back to those kind of early days um since you mentioned that the the uh, this idea of growth poles these uh, uh ideas the idea of focal points of development that then kind of uh, draw everything together and kind of act as a Spur to surrounding areas. Um, you mentioned uh, a little a little further in fact actually already in chapter two the, the fact that this had certain Soviet antecedents um, and I guess from a point of personal interest the divergence between uh, China's sort of agrarian revolution, Russia's also quite agrarian revolution but one that was clothed in a lot more ideas of proletarianization and, and sort of industrial and urban centres. Um, what was the relationship there between kind of China's desire to Borrow from a Soviet model, and the the obvious differences there in uh, in uh, kind of outlook and and, and attitude towards cities. Do you have any insights to offer into that?
0: Well, this is this is not the the focus of the book, but I think it is important to emphasize that this idea of, of growth pools, which remains a very live idea. this is a terminology that's still very actively used in China today and in recent decades, as I, as I stressed in the book, this does have its origins uh, in, in these earlier policies of the Soviet Union, I, I believe going back to the 1930s and 40s as part of the sort of sino-Soviet framework for economic cooperation and this larger support, both you know intellectual as well as logistical and material that the Soviet Union provided, the expertise that it provided, these kinds of policy logics became part of the repertoire that the planners and economists in the early PRC drew upon. Now, mm-hmm. that's not to say that they faithfully or exactly copied these models. So I think we can look back and see, even in the 1950s, probably divergences in the way that terms such as growth poll were understood and applied. But the fact that this term has this much longer sort of afterlife uh, has remained a very active mode of policymaking uh, and active uh, kind of mm-hmm. rhetoric in the PRC more recently also suggested this has really moved away from its earlier roots in, into a very different context. Um, right. But what, what I think we see in common, though, is that, as, as I think was the case in the Soviet Union, throughout the history of the PRC and not stopping in 1978, but continuing to the present day and in some ways even intensifying in, in the last couple decades or re-intensifying, has been this focus not just on shaping the industrial economy, not just on planning sectoral development and deciding which industries, which firms, should grow, uh, and which can be de-emphasized, but also very heavily for the state to intervene in spatial development, to choose which cities, which regions, which parts of which cities should thrive, and the idea that it's not only legitimate, but also appropriate and technically beneficial for the state to play this role, picking winners in space, not just picking sort of industrial winners, as we're used to thinking about.
1: Mm, mm. Well, and, and that you've brought us back very skillfully there to what the book is actually about, uh, rather than my derailing comment about uh, about Russia. Um, so I think we, yeah, we, we, we. I'll ask then, what what was it that led you to the conclusion that it was a political explanation that kind of uh, provided uh, the answer to why areas of China develop and as they have, um, and and why was it that you that you came to see provincial authorities primarily as the major players in. This picking winners in space process.
0: So I think uh, to take one, one small step back, I mean, something that the book the book emphasizes sort of methodologically or analytically is, is to really take seriously the provincial scale of development for looking at China's urbanization. Um, I think when comparisons are made between China's urbanization and regional development process in other countries, there's often a very, you know, a fairly casual comparison between China as a national unit with nations in other parts of the world. Um, in discussions, for example, of things like urban primacy, how much of China's urbanization or its economic development is concentrated in the top cities or the top number of cities. but but, as anybody who's uh, you know given thought to the matter can can attest, China is so big and it's so complicated and multi-layered that it's it's always been a stretch to compare the political and economic entity we call China to other nation states or at least most other nation states. It's so big that I think in some ways to look for, territorial units that are comparable in scale, in population, and then the kinds of developmental challenges that they face to countries in other parts of the world, um, we have to look at the provincial level. And not coincidentally, in China, a lot of the key policymaking that's related to urban and regional development really takes place at the provincial level. This is not to say that Beijing doesn't play a major role as the source of uh, authoritative policy guidelines or as the ultimate origin of a lot of key resources, even policy permissions. But a lot of the actual orchestration of development to the extent that the state is really playing a role in configuring where uh, urbanization happens, where people are meant to go, where industrial projects are being sent in space, where firms are encouraged to invest. A lot of that is really getting directed from the provincial scale because it's China's provinces that themselves contain multiple uh, city regions, uh, both urban areas, rural areas, um, core and peripheral areas and that have to play this role of kind of adjudicating between these different parts of the spatial economy. Um, and so, therefore, I, I put a lot of emphasis on looking at uh, both the, this sort of scale of analysis and also looking at the very territorial rootedness of a lot of these processes. This is not a sort of free market process whereby firms and people are just uh, making individually minded decisions about where to locate. This is a process that I think from day one, Chinese authorities in the PRC have tried to very actively manage um, and this hasn 't abated uh, in, in, you know, in the last few decades it didn 't abate in the early years of reform, even though there was a widely perceived retreat of the state from certain kinds of economic intervention and if anything it 's returned with a vengeance i think since the late 1990s which is the period that I focus on in the book
1: mm. and that, well I, and I think uh, you 're absolutely right to sort of point out this this distinction between uh, how how it 's happened in China. Um, uh, compared to other, say, developing countries, not least because when one visits China and 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 then also visits other countries, uh, it's it's also very obvious that cities don't quite seem the same way. Uh, certainly, the the kind of lack of um outlying informal housing or kind of large sprawl of, of of blurring area or areas that sort of blur town and countryside are less evident there in in China, which I suppose. Speaks of a kind of top-down management of this hukou uh, system that you've already uh, invoked there, um, and, and and so uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, it, it helps to have a, a grounded explanation as you provide of, of what what's going on here and why why things seem uh, very different in China compared to other places of a similar perhaps economic trajectory. Um, but when it comes to picking winners in space, to, to picking the kind of places that will develop and and and, and uh, kind of accelerate the developmental process, of course the authorities are dealing with with real people, they're dealing with diverse geographies, and, and as you say, this vast and diverse territory. Um, so what are the kind of main factors that you came to conclude were most influential in whether picking winners actually works? I mean, it's not just a question of build this and they will come as we've seen in many areas of China and ghost towns and all the rest. I mean, what, what, what are the kind of underlying uh, uh, kind of factors that play into whether or not picking winners works? So
0: when I talk about picking winners, in particular, what I what I'm talking about in the book is this tendency that I think we observe across both both you know looking at the country as a whole, but particularly looking at provincial level development trajectories in China, for development in some cases to be very heavily concentrated in the biggest cities, which are typically the provincial capitals, sometimes also some of what are called the deputy provincial cities, such as you know Qingdao or Dalian, some of these other cities of higher administrative rank and larger size. Um, so as I discussed in the book, we can broadly simplify and talk about different kinds of spatial development models or paradigms that are adopted at the provincial level in China. And there are some models that are more metropolitan oriented, which concentrate heavily on building up the biggest cities to make them even bigger, even flashier, to improve their amenities to the point that they you know, look like leading global cities, um, To obviously to build up their skylines, in many cases to deliberately expand their populations to to hit certain targets that are deemed politically prestigious or that may qualify cities for certain kinds of state benefits or or support. Um, In contrast with that, um, an alternative model or a very different model would emphasize more dispersed development, which would be the idea that the state should play a role in actively decentralizing resources, pushing uh, investment, pushing policy support and even encouraging people to move out of larger metropolitan regions into smaller cities or into rural areas. So those are the kind of two poles of development models that I think historically we we've, we've seen in China and also in, in other settings, there's also, of course, a sort of uh, middle road that places can take where they try to embrace elements of both. Although mm-hmm. obviously there's a risk always of, of coherence, uh, when you, when you are trying to juggle multiple goals at once. So I look at, you know, fundamentally why we see very different spatial development models taking shape in different parts of the country, both at different points in time, but also cross-sectionally at the same points in time. Why is it, for example, that in Hunan province in, in south-central China, we see a, a development approach that's heavily, heavily focused on the development of Changsha, the capital city, um, pouring resources, policy support, even high levels of government publicity into the buildup of this, of this one city and its infrastructure, whereas across the border, in, a, in what would seem to be a similar province uh, of Jiangxi, which neighbors Hunan to the east, a rather different development model that put relatively more emphasis on smaller cities, on rural development themes, so I try to understand this variation, and in the book, I emphasize a couple big explanatory variables. And these are not meant to capture all variation, to be sure, but I think that they do get at an important part of the story. One of these key variables is the relative economic performance that different provinces or regions have experienced, whether regions uh, are, are lagging or, or or leading relative to their counterparts, which affects the extent to which they feel uh, threats from economic competition. Whether they feel threatened and, and believe they, they might be marginalized or kind of consigned to the background of China's development if they don't effectively compete in the in this kind of urban economy. Um, on the other hand, another factor I emphasize is this game of uh, vertical power relations or intergovernmental relations between different tiers of government in China, between central uh, policies, provincial level policies, sub-provincial level policies, and the different agendas that actors at these different scales actors who identify with different sort of territorial frames, different uh, territorial scope of development uh, pursue. And so that's where I emphasize the key role that provincial governments in particular have been playing in these efforts to groom powerful urban champions, these cities that can be highly competitive, both within China as a more integrated national economy, but cities that can also become more powerful and prominent in a global economy at at a time when obviously there's increasing integration of global supply chains or has been uh, at least to this point and, and increasing integration of global supply chains, movement of talent and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we'll get on in a second to how some of the concrete uh, policies and, and practices have played out in, in uh, particular locations. Um, but just before that, and, and we've kind of covered a lot of what's in both the introduction and uh, in chapters two and three, in fact, uh, at this point, but uh, before we get into the specific cases, I thought I'd also just ask something you hinted at there Uh namely uh, a question about the different levels of government and how, how they interact. I mean, what are the different uh, tools and uh, kind of um, uh, levels of authority that that the different governments at the state, the provincial and the, and even down to the county level have to affect the way urbanization proceeds? Um, and, and what happens when they disagree? How much autonomy do provincial levels have over budgeting and so on? I mean, could you just... Give us a bit more of a picture of how those kind of multi-level dynamics play out.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, one of the things I try and do in the book is highlight this set of policy tools that, that governments in China, but I think also beyond China, use in their efforts to steer where development is happening geographically. So what kinds of, uh, what kinds of resources, what kinds of policy mechanisms um, can, can higher level governments in particular use to try to at, determine where development is happening? Um, So I look at a number of different policies in the book, and there are a broader set of policies in the real world that that are probably relevant. But I focus in particular on regional planning frameworks, which are efforts to coordinate across different functional sectors where development is happening and to assign political priority certain locations over others. I also look at the role that allocation of uh, land development uh, rights and quotas in particular play in, in the Chinese context. These are of crucial importance um, to the ability of cities to expand because in order for cities to expand their footprint and to incorporate erstwhile rural land into urban districts or into urban built up areas, cities in China and county level cities in China as well have required uh, quotas, both for conversion and also in some cases for development of, of this, this uh, formerly rural land. So that's something which is allocated by higher levels of the state. I also look at mechanisms such as fiscal resource transfers and financial lending. Obviously, uh, urban development is very capital intensive. So uh, these mechanisms which affect the cross-regional distribution of money, um, access to bank loans of enormous scale, um, these are very uh, important as well. And, and lastly, I look at some of the sort of strategic infrastructure mega projects uh, that governments can use to um, to drive development in or to particular places. So when you think of the construction of new airports, new high-speed rail lines, both the configuration of these networks and also the uh, construction of of huge sort of locational assets in particular places can really affect the prospects of different cities or regions to develop to uh, become articulated with the larger national economy or world economy. So these are some of the policy tools that I look at. And uh, there are others that we could speak of as well, although they're not the focus of this book, uh, policies such as migration policies, um, industrial policies, and so forth that also may have important spatial consequences. Um, but what's, what's interesting, as you note, is that sort of ability to influence these policies or to deploy these different policy tools is not evenly held across different levels of government. Um, so we have to remember, of course, that China is ultimately a unitary system where Beijing uh, notionally calls the shots. It has final, say, over virtually any policy outcome. But in practice, of course, China operates in a much more decentralized fashion. There's a lot of delegation of different powers and resources to lower levels. Um, At at the local level, uh, when we look to the the level of cities and uh, counties, these are the the government levels that are really at the forefront, at the kind of coalface of urban development. They're the ones who play a very powerful role in land development, who interface quite closely with industrial actors, who do a lot of uh, what the Chinese call shang yinzi, so attracting uh, capital, recruiting investors to come in. These are the sort of, I think, most active, parts of, uh, most active players in, in development. Um, and to be sure, cities and counties themselves have a lot of tools they can use to drive development locally. But as I emphasize in the book, um, localities are ultimately constrained uh, because they depend on all kinds of support and policy permissions from higher level governments. So as I alluded to earlier, for example, they need access to the right to use certain quantities of land in a particular year if they want to expand the footprint of their city or if they want to capitalize on their land resources.
1: Mm, they
0: may need mm. or depend upon uh, large-scale investment from state-owned enterprises, which might be sort of strategic uh, drivers of growth in a region. You know, If you think of a large central enterprise that can bring a factory or a production facility that can bring tens of thousands of, of, of jobs or that can in- inject billions of dollars of, of new economic potential into an area, Those are things which depend on higher level support, as do strategic uh, infrastructures of various types. So Beijing, as I said, ultimately has control over a lot of those kinds of policy. But in practice, it's really provinces that play a key role in uh, managing uh, different cities, in affecting the way that different cities are connected to each other with infrastructure, in allocating fiscal and financial resources downward to city level governments. And that's why I put a lot of emphasis on this provincial level, with its key role of intermediating between the localities and the larger state apparatus,
1: right. And this middle, yeah, I think this middle point is a great one to sort of look in both directions uh, from. I mean, of course, China um, is this immensely complex and multi-layered thing, but also it's somewhere that uh, even even itself or the authorities in Beijing like to project an image of sort of monolithic, single. Uh, centralized power. So I think the the, the the case studies you provide and the kind of real ground level analysis uh, that, that is in this book is an excellent lens through which to look at how the different layers of, of the state, which is, of course, not all one unitary thing, uh, interact and, and, and sort of rub against each other and, and don't always agree uh, and negotiate their kind of um, uh, divergent goals and aims. Um, but we'll perhaps then jump into um, the situations in which these these things play out and some of the specific case studies that you highlight. Um, Moving on to chapters four and five, which respectively deal with Hunan and Jiangxi, uh, we've already mentioned uh, both places briefly. Um, And you actually begin the book as a whole with this kind of uh, uh, quite evocative uh, picture of uh, what was going on in Changsha, Hunan, uh, a few years ago, where, where these kind of ludicrous Uh, Well, maybe maybe not ludicrous, but uh, ambitious uh, projects to build enormous skyscrapers in no time at all were being hatched, and um, I think uh, gained quite a lot of notoriety uh, in and beyond China. So it's a great, uh, a great case study to to bring out here as the first, uh, the first sort of specific uh, instance that you provide. Um, So I wonder if you could uh, just kind of introduce us a bit to the the Hunan case, and uh, you've already alluded to Changsha being the kind of focal point. Uh, And and in particular, I'm interested in hearing about the uh, way that Changsha also formed part of a kind of city cluster that that, that, uh, Hunan tried to develop, um, a common feature across China. Um, So, yeah, how did how did this sort of mono city focus uh, kind of develop and and play out in Hunan?
0: So I I lead with the case study of Hunan because Hunan for me is is one of the clearest cut cases in China of this kind of metropolitan oriented development paradigm where we see. These concerted efforts by state actors to really target resources to the big cities to take the places that are already relatively well off and to make them even even more competitive, even wealthier, even more sophisticated in terms of you know economic size, economic uh, scale, in terms of the range of economic amenities that are present. And this is you know you know it's ultimately what I think drew me to the project in the first place was noticing that these kinds of, of policies were taking shape in a lot of China's interior provinces. So I was struck that in these regions, which remained in, in large part you know, relatively poor, or at least underdeveloped compared to China's uh, richer coastal provinces, despite the fact that you know, there were still challenges of kind of grinding rural poverty, of uh, under-urbanization across provinces like Hunan at large, we see some number of provinces, at least for certain periods of time, adopt these strategies that just deliver even more benefits to, to what are already the, the best off places. So I was struck by this. And what was particularly striking to me about the case of Hunan is that there was a period of about 15 years where this, this province really attempts to lift itself up by its own bootstraps, um, precisely by engineering this kind of uh, unbalanced development internally. Um, at the the uh, party secretary of Hunan in 2009, uh, at that time, Zhang Chunqian, even uses this very explicit language that we should utilize the law of uneven development to sort of spur along Hunan's development. And very similar policy rhetoric um, was present many years before that, as I, as I document in this case study. So this is really an effort to look at both the sort of policy rationale and the political factors and, and economic conditions that are behind this decision to focus so heavily on Changsha, building up this city that, you know, at, at, the, start of, at the start of the 1990s, the kind of period where I, I begin the narrative, Maybe accounted for you know fourteen or fifteen percent of the total economy of Hunan, Hunan I should say, in a province with the population the size of France, um, and then you know only about fifteen years later was uh, almost thirty percent of the provincial uh, GDP. So a province, a, a city that came to really tower over the rest of the provincial landscape. Um, and so I, I was curious to understand really how this came about. Um, and so I you know I traced things backward to look at the period where in the in the mid nineteen nineties Hunan as one of China's central agricultural provinces, was really experiencing a crisis of competitiveness. It was a province that found itself slipping further and further behind neighboring provinces on China's coast, like Guangdong and Fujian, which, of course, had earlier access to both the policies and the market advantages of reform and opening, um, and which had already seen much faster industrialization and urbanization in the 1980s and early 1990s. So Hunan's policy elites by the early and mid-1990s are really waking up to this, what appears to be a terrifying future in which they really face marginalization um, Mm -hmm. as more people and talent and capital are flowing out to bigger cities on the coast, and as these interior provinces like Hunan are uh, suffering from their landlocked status and missing out on the chance to groom more advanced industry, to attract foreign firms and, and investment and so forth. And the decision that these elites take is essentially... even though we can't quickly transform Hunan's economy as a whole, we can transform this so-called golden triangle around the Changsha area. So the the metropolitan region, which includes both the capital city of Changsha, these neighboring cities of Zhuzhou and Xiangtan, which are slightly smaller, but which form a sort of uh, integrated um, economic and social region along with Changsha. So there's this very overt decision taken as early as the mid-1990s. And what's striking is that Hunan really adheres to this logic of unbalanced development for the subsequent 15 years uh, through the, the full period that I examine in the book, up to about 2010 or 2012, Hunan is still heavily favoring Changsha in, in terms of a lot of aspects of development policy. And through this brute force focus on building up Changsha with huge amounts of state investment, with preferential policies, with efforts to build up industrial clusters and urban infrastructure in the capital city, the province actually uh, you know, succeeds at its stated goal of, of boosting uh, Changsha's profile, a city that had you know, probably a million and a half urban residents um, as of the mid-1990s. Today has nearly five million urban residents. It has a GDP now um, that's close to that of Nanjing or Qingdao or other big, bigger uh, metropolises on China's east coast. So this project on its face has been successful through this brute force mobilization of the state but it's also come at an extreme cost because to achieve this Hunan has had to systematically deprive other regions in the province of similar amounts of financial support of policy attention and so forth. And that's compounded a lot of, you know, serious uh, inequalities and disparities and it's fanned regional grievances within Hunan, uh, with, uh, particularly in places that have been left out from that sort of metro oriented development.
1: Mm, mm. I know well, it's a great kind of, yeah, picture you paint there of, of how how this has all sort of uh, evolved and you bring in other insights about the, the success and and perhaps some of the reasons for success that might underlie uh Hunan's particular story too uh, including uh, things on the on the cultural side of things uh Hunan does have a particular kind of regional identity it occupies a certain place i think in a wider chinese imagination of course the home uh, province of Mao Zedong but also somewhere famous for certain Uh, kinds of spicy food and uh, various other sort of, uh, and more recently, the the success of uh, Hunan TV, right, the the kind of very successful provincial satellite TV station. Um, But uh, yeah, I I mean, I wonder, uh, you kind of uh, give very uh, good reasons for why Changsha became the focal point, this kind of uh, insecurity of of being lost, sort of stuck in the middle of China. Uh, You quote at one point, a a kind of axiom, I think that, that you say was floating around uh in, in sort of past years of development that um this uh, idea of boudong boushi boushadongxi right this idea of uh if you're not in the east of China, if you're not in the west, which is being deliberately developed by Beijing, then you're nothing you know you're you're nowhere, and so how this anxiety played out in the case of Hunan driving forward the development of Changsha in particular um is a is a very kind of uh vivid expression of 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 that insecurity i suppose but but you say that yeah. It's ended up leaving behind a lot of the regions of the province and, and in an area the size of France. I mean, <laughs> you know, that is a lot of that's a lot of area. Um, so how, how have the the kind of rural parts or the smaller counties, smaller cities responded? And, and what challenges has that posed to the provincial authorities?
0: Right. So, you know, the challenge with with maintaining this kind of metropolitan oriented project over a long period of time, of course, is it, it makes a lot of, it makes a lot of localities unhappy because a lot of parts of the province have been left out. Um, It also, I think to some extent, you know, has deviated from the instructions or the, the advice of the central government, which has never uh, so forcefully advocated this kind of all out metropolitan development. Although I think policies in some ways have become, more, more favorable or did become more favorable toward big city development after the turn of the 21st century, Beijing and central leaders have always hemmed and hawed and been much more careful about endorsing a kind of all-out metropolitan uh, metropolitan focused approach. And, and this in some ways traces back to these antecedents that we mentioned earlier about the longstanding concern that the Communist Party in China, as a historically rural revolutionary party, as a party that in some ways remains suspicious of the political potential of of big cities has toward toward metropolitan areas. So, uh, where did this political impulse come um, come from that that could override? I think both reservations on the part of the central government toward this kind of development model, and also overcome the centrifugal you know force that the lobbying of lots of different localities, lots of cities and counties across Hunan, um, all of them clamoring for resources, would would present. And so. Uh, as I mentioned, the sort of logic, of course, behind building up Changsha was that this is a way to achieve leapfrog development. This is a way by building a provincial scale growth pole to kind of create a growth engine for the whole province, or at least a showcase that puts Hunan's best foot forward. Um, but that's, that's, that's the idea. And the reality is a, is a political challenge. And so I, I go into a lot of depth uh, in this book, both in this chapter and in other chapters, looking at how the kind of political base for these kinds of uneven development policies is forged. And here's where I argue that the strength of the provincial establishment and the cohesiveness of the provincial establishment, both relative to localities beneath it, um, all of which, as I said, themselves are promoting their own growth and eager to attract resources and policy attention, and also uh, relative to Beijing above, the central government above with its own policy dictates with its own demands, matters a great deal in shaping the extent to which provinces can carry out these kinds of urban champion strategies. And so in mm-hmm. the case of Hunan, um, as you've sort of alluded to, um, I, I highlight both sort of uh, structural and long longstanding cultural characteristics of the province that make the provincial unit a relatively salient one for the purpose of you know, economic and, and political development. But I also call attention to sort of uh, bureaucratic factors and, and more explicitly political factors that have given the provincial government in Hunan the kind of leverage that it needed to carry out this very audacious strategy and a very controversial strategy. And mm-hmm. so in addition to these, these facts, such as the sort of you know, traditional integrity of the provincial unit or the strength of a provincial identity that can be mobilized and that can serve as a rationale for you know investing so much in the capital province, in the capital city, even if this means sacrifice for other regions, it's also important to look at the, the the you know material strength and organizational strength of the provincial government relative to other levels of government, and it's important to look at the leaders who are in charge in Hunan. So I, I devote a lot of attention, in particular, to the machinations and maneuvering of Hunan's top leaders, these provincial party secretaries, governors, in some cases deputy governors, who had the job of transforming these plans into reality. And a lot of what they were able to achieve, I think, they were able to achieve because they very adeptly uh, reached out to and even in some ways drove decision-making within the central government um, by uh, by engaging in activism and lobbying at strategic moments. And they also marshaled their resources very in a very disciplined fashion within Hunan to try to mm-hmm. achieve big and very visible breakthroughs that could be used to justify even more uh, sort of developmental preference and even more special state support from the central government. So a lot right. of the story I tell is one of A very, um, uh, as I said, a very uh, insecure and frightened provincial establishment, worried about the fate of its provincial economy, but also a very uh, cohesive provincial establishment that realized that it held the cards to a certain extent. And if it could get its own act together, could mobilize the resources both within the province and outside the province to build up its own big city that could then reposition the whole province and give a new image to this, you know, historically rural and fairly poor uh, part of China.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when it comes then to the comparison with Jiangxi, um, arguably somewhere that, uh, according to what you mentioned, are the central government's preferences, a a better behaved uh, provincial unit, uh, which has practiced more dispersed or at least mixed development. Um, Are are these then uh, uh, explicable according to the same indices? I mean, is it that Jiangxi has a less cohesive uh, provincial identity, a less uh, strong uh, sort of political establishment in Nanchang, the, the, the central city, or what, what? What other factors influence why Jiangxi presents such a such a contrasting case, despite, as you say, being next door, having uh, at the beginning of the reform period, been economically of quite a similar profile. Um, what, what else comes into play in the Jiangxi case?
0: Yeah. So, as you say, I'm very interested in this comparison because these provinces, in some ways, look very similar. They're confronting fairly similar developmental predicaments at the time when I, I pick up this, this sort of story in the mid-1990s. So as China's overall economic development is gathering pace, as reform and opening is, is accelerating, these two you know, central agricultural provinces next door to one another are both feeling increasingly that they're getting left behind. And this uh, causes concern of the type I described in, in Hunan, uh, in, in Hunan's policy elites in Jiangxi as well. So there are uh, provincial policy experts and leaders in Jiangxi who are also uh, advocating for much bigger, much bolder efforts to reposition the provincial capital Nanchang and Jiangxi in order to you know, get, get Jiangxi on the map as well. But these efforts uh, don't come to nearly the same level of success in the case of Jiangxi as they do in Hunan. There's much more variation over time, uh, over the period that I examine, from the late 1990s to roughly 2012, in, in the direction of policies in Jiangxi. And there's never the same singular focus on this kind of metropolitan agenda that we see in Hunan. And as you say, I do I do track that back to many of these underlying political factors. So even though these provinces have similar sort of developmental reasons that might lead them to consider a more metropolitan-oriented development model, it's only Hunan that has this sort of political formula in place. So when it comes to the administrative authority, both the sort of normative authority and the organizational power of the provincial establishment, that is stronger in Hunan. Uh, When it comes to the leaders who were in place at some of the most crucial moments, these leaders in Hunan that we see tended to be uh, younger, more rapidly rising leaders um, who were in a position politically, I think, to lobby more effectively for the interests of their province. Um, When it comes to the sort of fiscal and financial power of the province, although both, both provinces are relatively poor provinces that to some extent have depended on fiscal support from the central government, Hunan is ultimately a slightly bigger province and had slightly larger fiscal and financial resources that it could mobilize internally. And Hunan was also a more internally kind of consolidated province, Um, both, I think, historically, if we go back through decades and even centuries, but also in the reform period, there's been more devolution of authority and more localism in Jiangxi than than there has been in in Hunan to a comparable extent, the provincial Mm -hmm. establishment has been stronger and more vital in in Hunan, has been more of a locus of policymaking and political authority. And so those kinds of factors, I argue, have been important in shaping these very different outcomes in otherwise quite similar places.
1: Right, right. And and so in this case, I mean, you mentioned that there are voices in in Jiangxi which were advocating for uh, sort of metropolitan-oriented development, but perhaps, well, in in the event, didn't win out. Um, And and I guess... um, uh, the same as observable in, in in some other provinces. Um, is this enough to make us sort of look at the more evenly spread or mixed uh, developmental programs as a sort of failure of metropolitan oriented projects? I mean, is is the is the natural impulse as you see it towards this kind of single pole of of this kind of showcase city of of, of a province's developmental potential and promise um, that that does or does not fail, or or I mean. Is that not a fair characterization?
0: Well, I think um, I wouldn't call this a failure um, on the part of a province like Jiangxi, although I think what I'm trying to call attention to in the book is that there is this, this uh, provincial and, and to some extent even national policy discourse that focuses around these, these benchmarks of, of success, such as grooming these big, very outwardly competitive and impressive cities. Um, so that kind of rhetoric would lead us to think that, you know, Jiangxi has failed, uh, where, where Hunan has succeeded. And I don't come to that conclusion in the sense that I don't necessarily think that Hunan's developmental model is preferable to that of Jiangxi. But there's certainly a sense in which uh, policy elites within the provincial establishment um, in Jiangxi do become very disappointed to see that their, their capital city is unable to keep up, you know, not, not just with Changsha, but with other neighboring uh, major major, uh, major cities. Uh, in in uh, that part of China, and so there's a sense that provincial leaders in the late 1990s, um, the in in Jiangxi during that time, Shu uh, Huiguo and Shu Shengyo were the two provincial leaders that they missed the boat essentially in terms of a window of economic opportunity to launch this kind of uh, larger scale urban and industrial development that Hunan embarked on. That that these leaders were too rooted in the past. That they were later in their careers. They were not uh, in in a position to lobby. Beijing very effectively because they were, you know, older uh, older officials who had spent their careers largely within Jiangxi and didn't seem to be moving quickly up the promotion track. There was a sense of regret um, among some of the people I interviewed and that we find in some of the the sort of written analyses of policy experts from Jiangxi about the late 1990s as a period where Jiangxi fell crucially behind Hunan. There is a period in Jiangxi where under the tutelage of a stronger, more dynamic uh, provincial leader Meng Jianzhu, who is rotated in from Shanghai. Jiangxi too, has a moment where its policies focus more heavily on building up its big city. But what's interesting is that as soon as Meng leaves the province, and even to some extent before he does, the coalition for that sort of development model falls apart and is harder to sustain. Um, and so, again, in the late 2000s, as Hunan is tearing ahead with even larger scale efforts to build up Changsha, to integrate the metropolitan region into this even larger uh, changsha zhuzhou tan um, coordinated development uh, platform, We see uh, leaders in in Jiangxi, or provincial officials at least, who are regretting the fact that policies have have come to emphasize uh, rural development to a greater extent, focusing on smaller cities to a greater extent. So there is a certain amount of frustration among that narrow slice of the bureaucracy. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. of course, ordinary localities across Jiangxi um, are pleased to have greater developmental attention, to be able to either retain more resources or attract more developmental aid from the provincial level. Uh, Beijing is probably relatively pleased to see Jiangxi devoting more attention to rural development themes, to environmental uh, themes uh, during the the late 2000s, a period where Hunan is more singularly focused on urban development, full stop. Um, And so I think it's hard to to declare that one is a more successful model than another. But what I'm trying to do is to emphasize these really significant trade-offs, both spatial, social, sectoral, that these provinces are grappling with, and to get at this sort of dominant discourse that you know, big cities equal success. Now, that's something we have to take very critically, obviously, but it's a very powerful and gripping discourse, not only in mm. China but more broadly across the globe.
1: Sure, sure. And uh, you then, kind of moving on to chapter six and seven, provide a couple of other uh, compelling comparative cases uh, in uh, in Shanxi and Jiangsu uh, of of how some of these same dynamics played out in in different ways. Shanxi, based around the kind of central city of Xi'an. And and Jiangsu, I think a really interesting case that uh, although we won't have time to go into so much detail about this comparison, um, I thought I'd just ask about because Jiangsu in particular is uh, next to Shanghai, next to one of the absolute national level mega cities, you know, the the, the sort of, um, well, the cities that have a a provincial level status right in the country. Um, So I just wonder, um, could you say something about how uh, proximity or otherwise to uh, the, to the east coast, to the most favourable developmental kind of environment, and, and to one of the real national level cities, um, influenced how some of these dynamics played out in Jiangsu, and and, and how the comparison with uh, Shanxi uh, sheds light on that.
0: So uh, the the first two case studies, as as we've discussed in the book, look at the Hunan Jiangxi case comparison, and that's this pretty clean kind of comparison of similar provinces that have adopted different strategies. Um, by contrast, uh, when it comes to Jiangsu and Shanxi, which are, which are the, the case studies that round out the, the larger project, these look at two very different provinces, naturally. Jiangsu, as you said, being a coastal province, one of China's economic powerhouses. Shanxi in the northwest being one of China's relatively underdeveloped provinces, historically, at least. Although in recent decades, of course, it has seen uh, extremely rapid GDP growth and investment growth growth. Um, so these, these other cases really sort of explore how the same dynamics that I've highlighted in the cases of Hunan and Jiangxi play out in very different settings, and in settings in particular where at the outset there's this much uh, greater dilemma on the part of policymakers about how much do, will it be necessary to deal with regional inequalities and extreme disparities within these provinces versus putting emphasis on big cities. So in their different ways, both Shanxi and also Jiangsu um, go through this this period that I analyze, always having to deal with this simultaneous imperative of how to stay economically competitive while also managing these tremendous uh, gulfs in wealth and development internally. So, in, in the case of Jiangsu, the long-standing disparity between Sunan, southern Jiangsu, and Subei, the northern part of the province, which has historically been much poorer. Um, Sunan, as as you noted, cities like uh, cities like Suzhou, Wuxi, Changzhou, that are close to Shanghai and form part of the larger lower Yangtze Delta region, one of China's most developed areas. So there are these kinds of glaring regional disparities. Uh, Similarly, in Shanxi, the case of uh, Xi'an versus the rest of the province. This is a a province that historically has had sort of one show in town when it's come to big cities and large scale industry. And that was largely Xi'an and the surrounding region. That, of course, Mm -hmm. has diversified a bit in, in the last decade or two. So in these second two case studies, I'm more interested in these complicated dynamics where there is no clear sort of policy template for provincial leaders to follow because they're juggling these, these, uh, you know, conflicting imperatives of maintaining regional balance and, you know, the political stability that that confers while also having to compete with other provinces and other parts of, of the country. So in the case of Jiangsu, you know, that plays out in an interesting way. So as you, as you've mentioned, Jiangsu is haunted by always being in Shanghai's shadow throughout the the reform period. Um, And so this is something that, you know, obviously overshadows a lot of the development thinking within the province. Uh, Shanghai's proximity is both an opportunity for Jiangsu in the sense that Shanghai is and historically has been quite closely networked with neighboring parts of, of Jiangsu province like Kunshan, what is now a county level city. Um, that's directly adjacent to, to Shanghai, but also to the larger uh, Sushichang or Suzhou, Changzhou, Wuxi region. So these kinds of linkages have been a, an advantage for Jiangsu, but uh, Jiangsu has also had to grapple with having the most competitive city in China on its doorstep and has mm-hmm. been troubled by its inability to cultivate its own metropolitan city that has comparable, uh, comparable scale and prestige. So Nanjing, as the provincial capital of Jiangsu, uh, has long occupied a, a kind of awkward position in terms of development because it's not only is it not uh, first largest in terms of GDP size, um, and of course we know that GDP uh, size is a key part of the, the sort of prestige pecking order in, in these in these Chinese uh, regional development schemes. But it's it's not only first, it's not only not first, but it's not second. It, it lists uh, ranks behind both Suzhou and Ushi in terms of its economic size, and this has been mm. a source of humiliation and a source of sort of awkwardness actually both for provincial officials in Jiangsu and also for Nanjing's officials um, in the capital city of Jiangsu. So policies in Jiangsu at various points have put more or less emphasis on building up Jiangsu's cities, particularly Nanjing and Suzhou, to make it more competitive uh, with, with Shanghai and with other neighboring cities. But they've also had to grapple with this problem of, are closing a huge gap with Subei, with the northern part of, of Jiangsu. And so what we see in the case of Jiangsu as I, as I look at it are these different kinds of you know territorial dynamics playing out, both this constantly shifting focus between building up the big cities in the south part of the province and then taking time to redistribute resources and policy support to the cities of the north and the poorer rural regions of the north, but also some of the elaborate politics and spatial conflicts that play out within these big metropolitan regions in Jiangsu, uh, in Suzhou in particular, which, which is next to Shanghai, and therefore has a very sort of vexed political geography. So this chapter delves much more into these different scales at which um, the interests of different government levels are conflicting with each other, and the very awkward position that provincial officials have found themselves in, and consequently these shifting tides of, of policymaking that we witnessed over the last several decades.
1: Mm. And it's an extremely revealing picture overall, I think, of what uh, Chinese provinces are in a way. I mean, it's not something that I think a lot of people pay a great deal of attention to. You know, you can especially now move with such ease and smoothness between the major cities in different provinces on, on high-speed rail and, and so on. Um, so considering what these units actually uh, what, what kind of internal diversity they have, and how uh, the authorities in each one have tried to run them. Um, I, uh, I think is a tremendously useful uh, contribution in general to our understanding of how how Chinese politics works, you know, regardless of the uh, the kind of specific focus on on cities and and urban and urban, gen- and urban uh, development. Um, but that, that's fantastic. Well, Carl, finally, I, I mean, you end the uh, book with some reflections on kind of generalizability of of your. Models and your political analysis uh, beyond China, uh, in particular to Brazil and India. So um, I wonder, could you just give us a quick flavor of, uh, of how you see that uh, kind of is it generalizable? I mean, how does it um, how does how does your your kind of analysis and analytical framework uh, work when applied to very very different national and uh, and, and cultural contexts? Well,
0: um, as a as a card carrying political scientist. Um, it's incumbent upon me to not not just get you know uh, excited about and obsessed with the particularities of these cases i'm looking at but also to think about you know to what extent these dynamics i'm i'm trying to identify in the four main case study provinces do travel and whether they're present elsewhere and what's striking to me is that i i do see you know very strong echoes of these same kinds of logics and these same kinds of causal factors more broadly so one of the exercises i carry out in the book is to look at the larger set of, of China's provinces. I, I end up looking at a sample of 26 provinces, which is most of the provinces. I, I don't look at the, the four centrally governed municipalities because they're quite different in terms of both their governance arrangements and the kind of geographic uh, geographic challenges with which they grapple. But I look at whether these same explanatory factors that I highlight, in particular, the relative economic performance um, and the relative strength of the provincial level of government as compared with with levels above and below, have in shaping spatial development models so this is one way that i try to demonstrate that the the broad relationships that i trace out in these four provinces do hold more broadly across china during the period that i'm looking at but as you mentioned i'm also interested in the way that this plays out in other national contexts Um, i am somebody who's you know primarily steeped in studying china but i i've been struck in in reading uh other scholars work on on contexts like india and brazil how, how actually similar um, and strikingly similar uh, some of the dynamics around urbanization and regional development have been. And I think those of us who are regional experts or who focus on a particular region, um, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that as special as China is, um, it, it can be compared, and I think it can be fr- fruitfully compared with other countries. We have to be careful about which ones we compare it with. But when it comes to countries like Brazil and India, which are other you know, large developing countries, that have experienced rapid industrialization and urbanization at, at roughly the same chronological stage, um, I think we can indeed, you know, draw some interesting conclusions. So um, I was struck to see just how similar some of both the rhetoric around uh, sort of spatial development strategies, these efforts to build up urban champions to build up these powerful uh, cities as juggernauts and growth engines for larger uh, provincial economies have been not just in China, but in uh, Brazil, India, and also other contexts. So, part partly, it's just to highlight this kind of shared, the shared developmental logic. But I'm mm. also struck by the way in which a lot of the same kinds of factors that I've found to be important in these Chinese cases do seem to be important when we look at at least certain cases um, that I've become acquainted with from from India and Brazil as well. So, I look at um, a couple province, a couple of states, I should say, of India as comparative cases, looking at Andhra Pradesh and West Bengal and the, the various ways in which these two major Indian states have tried to reconcile growth of their big cities with their larger uh, their larger state economies and geographies, um, and find that in, in some parallel ways, the strength of the provincial level and its ability to coordinate development or its lack of that ability has been very consequential for the form that urbanization takes. And I'm also struck by the parallels that I see looking at Brazil. I look at the case, uh, drawing on, drawing upon secondary literature, I look at the case of, of Minas Gerais, a major state in Brazil, which in a, in a sense to me strikes me as a very similar uh, case to that of Hunan, which I've you know, foregrounded in my study of China. So I am uh, intrigued by these comparisons. We can't make them lightly, but I think that there's an important discussion to be had there.
1: Right, right. Well, and maybe you'll encourage... Uh... Brazilian region to markets itself as the uh, the Hunan of Brazil um such as uh, such as Hunan's fame these days um but brilliant Carl well thank you very much that's great having I mean tr- traced some of the intellectual genealogy of, of developmentalist ideas in China from Soviet antecedents then yeah it, it seems only fair to kind of uh wonder whether in a much more recent developmental era uh, there are there are generalizable effects and I think you demonstrate that that pretty um uh, eloquently and, and and thoroughly, I should say. There are two uh, excellent and uh, very rich appendices in the book uh, dealing with as the, the, the cases you mentioned, the kind of wider provincial situation across China and these uh, cross national extensions, as you call them, to uh, other national locations. Um, but thank you very much, Carl. Um, before you go, uh, perhaps I'll just ask you where your research has taken you since this uh, since this book. Have you have you followed it down? Brazilian and Indian pathways or uh, are you sticking to China or what, what kind of uh, research do you have currently in the pipeline? So
0: the, the next larger project that I'm working on in some ways I think is an organic continuation of, of some of what I've, I've looked at in, in this first book project but I've, I've gotten interested in the course of this first project which focuses really on development outcomes at some of the, the problems of actually administering China's large cities um, as, as you will have noticed in, in the book. Um, there are sort of uh, detours or asides that look in a little more depth at some of the challenges of governing metropolitan spaces and the the territorial strategies that different kinds of government have used to pursue their their economic objectives and their political objectives within these big cities, which increasingly concentrate such a large share of China's economic activity and population. So in the next project, I'm very interested in, in looking at some of China's larger cities and the ways that they've been territorially structured, broken into different districts and special zones, and also at the ways that that's changed and why different cities have been adopting different ways of of governing uh, both their economies and their their sort of geographies and what consequences this has had in terms of the access, for example, that people living in different parts of these metropolitan regions have to uh, economic development, um, to public amenities, um, and also to looking at the ways in which different levels of government are still competing to control some of the urban turf within these very dynamic, very uh, wealthy big cities. So that's, mm. that's where I'm going next. And, and so as you can probably tell, that, that does uh, follow pretty naturally from this first project. But it's, it's a challenging terrain in its own right um, just to become acquainted within, within these metropolitan regions with the extremely elaborate arrangements of governance. So that's, that's what's keeping me occupied at the moment.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, zooming down in on that kind of more uh, local level in, in, in some of these cities which you uh, draw such uh, uh, kind of uh, glistening attention to in this uh, first book, uh, yeah, will be extremely valuable, I'm sure. So we'll look forward to reading that. Um, Kyle, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you. It was It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. And listeners, thank you as ever for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you very soon. Goodbye.